RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode two of our National Case Closed Project, Supporting Best Practices in Investigation Season, Just Science sat down with Fabio Sanchez, Crime Gun Intelligence Sergeant at the City of Miami Police Department, Yanizi Delgado, Intelligence Analyst at the Miami-Dade Police Department, and Kevin Armbruster, Retired Lieutenant with the Milwaukee Police Department, to discuss how their agencies utilize ballistics evidence and cross-agency collaboration to improve gun violence investigations in the greater Miami area. When a fatal or non-fatal shooting occurs, investigators can submit ballistics evidence to the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network, or NIBIN, which will generate potential associations with other firearm cases in the area. Law enforcement agencies in Miami, Florida have developed best practices for utilizing NIBIN and other information sharing techniques to drastically reduce gun violence rates in one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States. Listen along as Fabio, Yanessi, and Kevin describe their agency's methods for quickly and effectively entering data into NIBIN, using social media and other analyses to track patterns in case evidence, and the importance of information sharing and collaboration for preventing gun violence. This episode is funded by the U.S. Department of Justice Bureau of Justice Assistance. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here are your hosts, Julia Britton and Kevin Armbruster. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Julia Brinton, with the National Case Closed Project, a program of the Bureau of Justice Assistance. Here to join me as co-host is retired Lieutenant Kevin Armbruster from the Milwaukee Police Department. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me on here. Um, It's going to be great. On today's episode, we will discuss applying a forensic intelligence approach that leverages forensic evidence and intelligence analysis to direct investigative resources and to help solve gun-related investigations. Here to guide us in this discussion is Sergeant Fabio Sanchez with the Miami Police Department and intelligence analyst Ms. Janese Delgado with the Miami-Dade Police Department. Welcome, Sergeant and Ms. Delgado. Thank you for talking with us today. I'm going to start with you, Kevin. Can you talk a little bit about your background and why you joined the National Case Closed Project? Yes. I retired from the Milwaukee Police Department as a lieutenant after 30 years. Uh, My background primarily is investigations, drugs, gangs, guns. Then I worked in our homicide unit, did a little bit with sex crimes and a federal task force officer. As a supervisor of violent crime units and most of the federal task forces and our intelligence fusion center, it really helped and kind of rounded me with just violent crime and technology. And I was very influential in building our Milwaukee Crime Gun Intelligence Center, and it became a national model while I was there. Thanks, Kevin. Sergeant, can you talk a little bit about your current role in Miami? Hello, and thanks for having me in this uh, podcast. My name is Fabio Sanchez. I'm a sergeant with the City of Miami Police Department. Uh, I've been here for 25 years. 17 years of it has been in investigation capacity. I've worked from burglary, economic crimes, homicide, to public corruption, internal affairs. This program with us, we started our crime gun intelligence detail in September of 2019. Basically, that's when we started our NIBIN program in-house in the city of Miami. And the way we did that is that we bought our own brass tracks machine so that we got the proper training from our partners at the crime lab here in Miami-Dade County. They trained us on how to uh, triage evidence. They taught us how to identify, you know, how many guns were in any group of casings so that we could upload it properly into the NIBIN 
database, the, the National Integrated Ballistic Information Database. They trained us so that we could do comprehensive collection and submission. So that means whether it's a contact shooting where somebody got shot or killed, or whether it's a shooting where nobody was there to uh, witness or provide any testimony, we still collect all that evidence. We triage it and we submit it to NIBIN because we don't know when uh, the shot spotter incident with no victims, no witnesses is going to lead us to get a, a lead to help us solve a homicide. We started small in September of 2019 uh, with a team of two detectives in the CSI that basically did everything within the NIBIN process at a technician level, not to the level that is done at the crime lab uh, with firearm examiners, but at the technician level. So we could, you know, guide the process, we could expedite the process. And we worked with our property unit so that we could make a lot of this processes automatic. We streamlined it. So uh, no longer does a detective have to uh, submit a request to process the evidence. It happens automatically. Our team goes to property. They have a good working relationship with them. We have the evidence that comes in. We see which guns come in, we see what casings come in, and we could uh, identify what needs to go into the NIBIN process. That What that has provided us is an ability to streamline the process that would normally take a long time between transport from our department to the county lab to uh, something that happens automatically within one day. So now we get information, we're able to triage evidence, enter it within the next business day, or if it's something important enough, we could do it the same day and get results back in as little as three hours. That's, the, that's I think, our, our record so far, three hours, where it's it, the evidence being processed, collected, and submitted to NIBIN in a NIBIN response. That information now helps investigators to uh, kind of consolidate investigation so that the moment we know that a homicide is connected to a shot spotter incident or shooting, we start at that moment in time relaying that information with our partners within Miami. So our victims are sometimes the offenders in Miami-Dade or Miami Gardens, and their offenders are sometimes our victims. So we created a good network within the NIBIN shareholders here within Miami-Dade, and we share information on a rapid level. So as soon as a lead comes in, we're already sending out emails. He's like, we're sharing information. Here's our report. Here's your reports. And then we're starting to compare information to see what commonalities we have, what leads that we have that are actionable at that point in time, and uh, what we can do about it. So overall, that process has helped out. I'd be 2019, we've generated over 1,400 leads within our department, and uh, we've had a lot of great success that can be quantified in how we started. Some of the information I could tell you is that our, as a result of collaborating with not only our department, but with collaborating with outside agencies, we've been able to reduce a lot of the crime, not only here in the city of Miami, but I think overall in Miami-Dade County, and I'm pretty sure our partner, Janacy, will collaborate as to how we're seeing the numbers go down due to our collaboration, because now we're getting to the information much quicker. We're getting to uh, the offenders, you know, the 10th, 11, 12, 13 shooting. We're getting it early on when we're making the connection. So that's how an in-department, uh, like in-house uh, CJIC program helps the department out because you can imagine the, the county that we have, the lab, has 32 agencies that they have to process evidence for. And on top of that, their own evidence from their own department. So by us being able to expedite our process, now we're sharing information with them on a regular basis. And then, so when it goes to trial, now we could actually, instead of uh, just doing all the entries that we do, now the county lab can actually go into it and, and do the comparison where a primary examiner is now going to testify to the results. So instead of submitting thousands and thousands doing the technician work that would normally be done by them, now they could concentrate on the work that really matters, which is uh, testifying in court to get our prosecution. So I started in 2019, which is the two detectives and the CSI. Now we've grown to over 12 detectives. This past June, we've actually not only done the NIBIN process, because we were very NIBIN support based, 
on, on our unit. Now we're actually doing enforcement where we're going to start using some of that intel that is not normally used by our investigators and doing follow-up investigations to see if we could identify the straw purchasers, if we could identify needs that cross jurisdictional boundaries and just do further investigations to really track down the prolific trigger pullers in our area. Fabio, that's such a, a, a great story and showing how it has evolved because in reality, from 2019 to this year, you've basically worked on the front end process, the lab, the getting your processes straight, working with your CSI unit. How have things changed or what efficiencies have your unit gained by doing things in-house? And then what is Miami Police Department lab? People look at like, there's in-house labs, there's outside state crime labs. How does your lab, when you speak about labs, what does that mean? Well, I'll start by saying the county lab, which is the sheriff's office. They have their, their own crime lab within Miami-Dade County. They're the ones that process the bulk of our evidence that needs any forensic uh, review and enhancement or anything forensic that needs to be processed for a prosecutorial process. You could imagine, I don't know the total numbers of shootings, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're in the range of thousands of shootings. Maybe Janice could probably state that fact. But if it's a crime that, that's processing thousands and thousands of shootings from a year from the surrounding agencies, it becomes difficult to get that information back in a timely basis. So by now being able to, as a department, being able to process that evidence as it comes in on a daily basis, now we're getting information that we could share and we were one of the main contributors to the county lab, aside from their own shootings, we were one of the main contributors. So we're part of the cog in, in the process. So we're delaying some of the, the results coming out because they just had a lot of, of workload to deal with between casings and, and guns and, and all that information. So by the time they got to investigation, sometimes in, in the previous version, I'm not saying the current version, because we've grown exponentially between uh, what we were at 2019 and what we are now. But uh, the crime lab now is able to do their evidence in a more timely basis. They're able to assist other agencies in a more timely basis, the smaller agencies that don't have that much shootings to go into it. And, and now the information we're sharing is is more current. So as the investigation is ongoing, the detectives are able to get that intel and see the context, how it collaborates with their investigations, their leads, their suspect vehicles, their offenders, and seeing how it correlates. And we get all notified at the same time. So for example, if in Miami-Dade County, somebody's picked up with a weapons violation, a felon in possession, and it gets entered into NIBIN, uh, and we get the results back that is involved with a you know shooting or any contact shooting or any homicide, now we have a good viable lead that that person is somebody that we need to talk to. So having that information in a timely basis makes it actionable. And then we could share that information with our detectives. And the other benefit of having an in-house team in the police department is that sometimes this information can be a little bit complicated. I mean, I could I could tell you that when I was a homicide detective in 2012, it was hard for me to read the, the actual Nibel leads and understand it. But now we have a dedicated team that could not only look at the actual lead, but could also see associations through the you know numerous databases that we have. So for example, ATF provides us with a database that we could see the whole access. So if we have multiple guns involved in the shooting, we could see then the trajectories of those other guns. So we could see the trajectories of those other guns and see what they're involved in if they've, if they've been recovered so that we could get additional information that now we can then feed to uh, detectives and saying, look, this person was picked up with this firearm. This firearm was associated. This guy was also arrested with it. Or this information, they have county has video and stuff that's going to help us correlate information. And when it comes to prosecution, our case might not be the strongest, but the county's case might be stronger. And when we start combining the evidence from both cases, uh, you know, 
either internal or external, now we have something that the state attorney's office can use to uh, to help prosecute and, and keep those people behind bars. No, I think that's very important, Alice, that you mentioned. I mean, you really laid out the foundation for uh, anyone listening of what you need to change and how things change. And it's not a fast process, I should say, you know, changing culture and changing your policies on your police department don't change overnight. And it's it's nice to see that it'll be a lot of success and just growing for Miami Police Department in the future. So turning to you, Ms. Delgado, what does your day to day look like in Miami-Dade? Can you talk to how you use intelligence analysis to assist violent crime investigations, how you use NIBIN and what is it? Talk about ShotSpotter. You've got a lot of tools that you use when you do your work. Hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Janice Delgado. I'm assigned to the Forensic Services Division from Miami-Dade Police Department. I'm currently an intelligence analyst. And what I do, uh, mostly when I was hired uh, originally by the crime lab, was in 2019, around October, so around the same time frame that CJIC was put in place in the city of Miami, I was allocated to the lab to create pretty much crime gun events reports similar to the ones that the CJIC um, centers have been pushing out. Besides that to also encompass additional data sets that might be found at some of these crime scenes. What I mean by that is my day-to-day would look like I would come in and we review all the NIBIN links that were processed for those listening in. NIBIN uh, links are um, links that are made at a microscopic level pretty much between different evidence that are left at a crime scene compared and basically pushed out and a scientist or a reviewer is basically letting us know, be it uh, Fabio who entered the evidence, myself as Miami-Dade Police Department or any other agency participating, that casings collected from other crime scenes linked together pretty much and is the same gun being present in multiple scenarios. That being said, uh, when I come in, usually I receive a link through NIBIN and they let me know if cases are connected, like Fabio mentioned, if somebody was arrested with a firearm. And what we've done through the years, if we pretty much created a database of so some of these NIBIN links through my charts, which we call them spider web analysis. And basically what comes into place is like when you're in school and you saw like a big spider and then everything linked and it kind of told you about all the connections and everything to, to come into place. That's basically what is in there is a layer of information. So you mentioned some of the systems that I used. Uh, ShotSpotter is one of them. So when a ShotSpotter goes off, an officer responds to the scene. A ShotSpotter is a gunshot detection system. What it does is it triangulates the sounds from the gunshots as it's actually being being fired from the offender or in might be a victim too, trying to defend themselves. It triangulates that sound and it lets you know within a 80 feet, I believe, uh, margin of error or just a circumference around the area where the shooter or the shooting might actually been originated. Officers are dispatched to the scene. Evidence will be collected. A call doesn't have to come in from a witness or a victim. It's just automatically an officer is dispatched there. Evidence is collected. Aid is rendered if there's a victim on site and that evidence is actually entered into night. What I've been basically realized through the years is sometimes you got a lot more information through shot spotter cases that you would if a victim was present. It allows us to see who is uh, beefing with who, for lack of a better terminology, who's fighting with someone, whose turf they're infringing on. And it gives us an idea if we just follow the forensic intel of the Niven links of what scenario is playing out. We also use as well CJIS, which is the crime um, justice information system, basically to let us know if victims have been arrested, if subjects have been arrested, if witnesses might actually be lying, or if witnesses actually have also witnessed other crimes and maybe they were the target at the time, they're afraid to come forward. But 
what allows us to do is look at their criminal history, the times that they actually had a, a run in with the law, either because they've been arrested or maybe there's an alert in the system for something else. We review as well our records management system. We don't have a records management system, but I'm using that terminology because it's usually the most common one that people are familiar with. It's basically our incidents report, reports that officer pick up on the road. We look as well at field interview reports that it's just when an officer had an interaction with someone, not necessarily a crime had to have occurred, but it's just there were suspicious activities that an officer saw an intake was made and that person will show up later on. There's also links, which is a great uh, database. It was created by the Naval Academy. It allows you to research multiple agencies, criminal pretty much record system or just records management system in general to see if they were involved in incidents, if there might be a witness somewhere, so on and so forth. And we take this law enforcement databases information and we add on to it the forensic intel portion on our end. And then we add on to that as well any open source information that we might find on social media. Um, we once had a scenario, for instances, that we realized a gun was targeting people that had a past of narcotics violation, or basically they were dealing or selling a particular turf. And we noticed that the same guns that were targeting these victims that had what we call TR-52 pass, which is a narcotics pass, also targeted some juveniles that didn't have a pass per se before. But when we delve into the social media of some of the juveniles, we start seeing a pattern that they themselves were actually just starting up a business selling narcotics and using social social media in order to do so. So their own friends were the ones that let officers know that the reason why they were targeted was because they were infringing on another's gang's territory. And this is all information like Fabio had mentioned before that we come across, we try to exchange, we share between the communities and the agencies as a whole and try to see which is the best way to target some of these violent offenders. And I use target not so much as in uh, we just focus on them, but see what is the best venue investigation in order to move forward with it. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I just wanted to ask one follow-up on some of the use of your gunshot detection system, because I know you guys have looked in, especially with trends through the United States now with the use of full auto gunfire. Do you look at gunshot detection systems or do anything special with full auto gunfire? We do. Besides the fact that ShotSpotter has a function now that lets you know if a gun has pretty much gone full auto just based on the sounds. When anything comes into the labs as well, it is flagged if it had a switch for this case. Now we're seeing as well here in Miami, which didn't happen before, is people have been changing the slides a lot. So sometimes we'll execute search warrants and we'll see the slat multiple slides, even though there's just one, technically one firearm part altogether. And they'll keep changing the slides to kind of throw off the examiner sometimes when they exchange fire, just because the slide creates different. Um, I know I'm using this terminology wrong because I'm not a scientist, just full disclosure. The grit is in the back where it makes the indentation that we put into Niven so they can compare it to like the bridge. And, and it creates a difference. And we actually had a scenario where a gun was recovering a search warrant. We test fired it. And I'm deviating a little bit from the switch and, and rapid fire. But they recovered the firearm from a crime scene. We test fired it linked to a homicide. But there were multiple slides actually located located at another location. When we tried the slide from the other location, actually, it linked back to the homicide, but to other casings there as well. So it wasn't so much we recovered the full firearm, but just the slice of it itself. So sometimes they'll do that just to throw off the investigator. But right now, what I'm working on when it comes to those high uh, power rifle mechanism is I'm trying to create kind of like a center database utilizing Power BI where I can analyze all those incidents that have occurred. For example, a type of rifle, a type of caliber that was recovered in a particular scenarios, encompassing shot spotter data, NIBIN results, as well as E-Trace results from these scenarios and trying to kind of map out where the weapons are coming from, what particular groups might be 
more likely to use the high-profile weapons? And if so, where are they getting them from? Who is their supplier here in Miami? And what I'm doing that is I'm getting with ATF and they're providing me the E-Trace data for the last two years. We're going to do three years in total of all the firearms recovered by our guys, pretty much. And I'm going to try to map that out in an interface where all these databases combine together to kind of help us almost be like an alert system and like, hey, you should look here or there's a pattern here just by looking at it, by creating this particular formula in which it kind of lets us know what certain things have picked up or not. And uh, that's pretty much what we're doing with a lot of the data from ShotSpotter. We're trying to take advantage of it, definitely. That's awesome. And you mentioned a couple of things, and this is what I really, really love. And I feel like you're, you're one of these best practices in the United States is the fact, I mean, you did mention ATF too, that you collaborate with them also, but you host and you have area meetings that you communicate with other analysts, not only just in your you know general city, in your regional area, you, it's multiple counties. I think it's just so important that you guys communicate like that. Could you explain a little bit more on how that works? Sure. As intelligence analysts, it's almost like we have a, a direct link to each other. We know pretty much the thought process or most of the analytical component that comes into our job description. And we actually host quarterly meetings and we actually have a group as well encompassing most of the analysts like through the county. That includes Homestead jurisdiction, Florida City, uh, City of Miami, obviously. But um, sometimes we actually collaborate directly with the CJIC centers just because they're open pretty much all the time, depending on when the incidents occurred, all the way up into Broward, uh, BSO, for Lauderdale, Miramar, Pembroke Pines. The idea is that as civilians, we actually don't transfer as much and move as much as an officer would, for lack of a term. We're actually fixated sometimes in a lot of our positions, just because when it comes to payment, it's usually the same depending on the unit you are. So a lot of analysts actually stay in the unit they, they've been assigned to for a long time. And if they were to move to another unit, they're still doing a lot of the same job descriptions and they can still assist us. And we're still working for the same function, which is to deter crime. Sometimes officers might be dispatched to different areas, different shifts uh, schedules. It, it might just be harder to communicate with them all together. And also they have other job responsibilities that an analyst would do. So we create, we make sure to create almost like a web of, of contacts, for lack of a better terminology, within the analyst field itself, where we help each other exchange information and make sure we pick up on any uh, trends that have been going on. We share that, decimate that, and ensure that our officers act on it because we know who to provide that information to at a more accurate time. We actually have an analyst in cybersecurity here at Miami-Dade that she does most of our quarterly meetings along with the training bureau to encompass all the analysts get together and we exchange ideas. We actually teach each other what techniques have been more proficient in the area, what actually works for us. And I'm actually hosting um, a presentation on Power BI because we recently acquired it, as well as new training on Excel, how we can utilize it to enhance our investigations. And when I'm saying that communicating with your counterparts, like the relationship I have with five is key to a lot of the success that we had here. I'm understating the importance of it. It's very important for law enforcement to get into the habit of sharing intel and making sure the intel is getting to the right personnel because you may have amazing intel, but I can't go and arrest anybody, Kevin. So it needs to be, it needs to go to the correct person, to the correct investigator. And we don't want to just broadcast it to the world because there might be information that might actually impede an investigation. So we need to know who that person is. And I think analysts kind of feels that void and allows us to encompass and, and go around that um, scenario that we have. Yeah, I, I think you're really bringing up an important point of what you do. I mean, you are 
bringing up all this intelligence on, especially with Niven leads, putting that contextual information, you're giving it to the investigators, you're having that communication. So, I mean, if people are are thinking about, you know, I'm waiting on getting police reports from other, you're that communication piece that is so essential to a crime gun intelligence center. I, I love it. And it probably goes right into the next question I have for Sergeant Sanchez. How do you collaborate with crime intelligence analysts and conduct investigations and some of your lessons learned? Because as you said before, now you're on that next part. Now you're on that operational part. And what Janacy said, she's giving you this intel. Where's the action that comes behind it? How does that work? Well, that's the most important part. And I could tell you that that when we started many years ago before this process, like we were basically siloed out. So a homicide investigation that would happen here would stay in house for the most part. And sometimes it happened in other departments, you know, just because people thought that that information was very crucial to not push that information out. But as NIBIN has been introduced and, and the way we use it here in Miami-Dade, the way we're pushing the information out to the affected detectives, the ones that know the intelligence, because there's so much reading the reports that we can do. We're not out there knocking on doors, talking to people, and we don't know, you know, the intel that's on the ground. So by making those connections now, we're able to consolidate investigations, whether it's with the city of Miami or with the Miami-Dade County. And by sharing that information on a regular basis, we're able to make the connections that that lead us to identify who the offender is and seeing what they're affected in. And now collaborating, not only internal, but externally, seeing if they have any phone numbers or phones that were connected to it. So that now we could add an additional enhancement of, their locations, their cell site, you know, their whereabouts at the time of the crime before and after. So as we get now the information that's basically intel-based, because now it's it's good and it's it is bad. So if it's a no lead, our detectives get very disappointed real quick. It's like, oh, there's no lead. But the good thing about knowing that there's no lead at that point in time is that you don't have to concentrate on that aspect of your investigation anymore. You could concentrate on other aspects to help you move the case forward. But there's been plenty of times, for example, uh, we had a recent case where we had a county homicide and a city shooting that happened the same day. The detectives were in a hospital and um, it was the same caliber cases that were involved in both shootings. And then the lead came in and they kind of... At that point in time that the cases were connected and then when they started comparing notes they saw that uh, the clothing that we had on our crime scene kind of matched what was in a search warrant so now we're joining investigations together and presenting them to the state attorney's office where now we could whatever makes our case stronger we could now focus on that information on that case and building that case up and then taking the time to do follow-up investigative uh techniques on the other case to make it, you know, round it up and make it stronger as well so that now we can prosecute both cases together. And what we call it here is a Williams rule. I'm pretty sure there's rules, you know, throughout the nation that we can do that. So, but collaborating, you're actually affecting uh, the crime that's happening in your neighborhood because like I said before, the, what Niven has taught us more than anything else is that, you know, the victims and offenders do not just stay in the general areas. So by now collaborating with that, those sites at agencies, now we're able to put more leads together and connect the dots like you see on my background over here. So we're connecting the dots to the shootings and then getting that intel on the ground, the ground truth uh, for the most part from the detectives and then collaborating in that manner. So as I say, with our detectives now, not only collaborating and understanding the the, the intel and, and being data driven now, for example, we have a case where we know who the offender is, but we don't have enough uh, probable cause to go forward the arrest. Now we can start doing some proactive measures. We can start doing uh, seeing if uh, who bought the guns, start concentrating on that angle of it, which normally investigating the pedigree of the gun is not something that's really investigated that often by agencies because they're just concentrating on what that gun did. So by identifying who purchased the gun, now, now you can start getting that information. Okay, did you have the gun? If you didn't have the gun, then did you sell the two or was it stolen? And you could start 
you know, narrowing down the time frame to who possibly possesses a gun and getting those, that information, you know, to help you solve the case. Or we do a surveillance. We know that, you know, that individual or suspect is uh, riding armed and we try to get him with a firearm, hoping that it's the one that was used in the previous crime or adding additional charges on that individual that would then lead us to uh, see if we could do a proper session or, or get additional information as to what he's been doing in, in our area that's been targeting victims. So there's a lot of intel that guides what we do. The beautiful part about it is that you're really concentrating on the segment of the community that's doing the most shooting. So it's not like you're drawing a, a blanket over everybody saying, okay, there's a black car. We're going to stop every single black car. Now it's like, okay, we know these individuals. We're hyper-focused on the information. Now we're, we have identified the individual and now we're going to concentrate on that information. So it's a way to uh, let the, the intel guide your investigations and be laser-focused on identifying the ones that have the most shootings in your agency. And by doing that, by putting the right number of people in, in jail, you, you tend to see that the numbers of crime goes downwards. And that's some of the experience that we have here that uh, in Miami-Dade County that a lot of our crime trends or shootings are really going in the opposite direction or going downwards because we collaborate on a regular basis. Now, we're not naive to think that it's stopping. I'm pretty sure it's being diverted to our, our partners in Homestead and our partners in, in Broward. So they're starting to see what the effects of displacement of the crime that's happening here. But another good thing is that we have a good tool set, a good uh, platform, a good foundation that we could share that information and, and spread it across. Yes, Sarge, I, I really think that uh, you hit that on the head. It, the, the thinking about like how you're targeting people and targeting the right people. I think there's a lot of cities around the U.S. that actually have uh, a CJIC program in place, but they're missing this part. They're, you know, the leads are just going to detectives and they're letting the detectives do it themselves. But you're adding uh, additional people in place to actually bring these cases to the finish line, to do the extra work. You're bringing these resources in to federal resources, your own resources. You mentioned surveillance. There's usually extra search warrants with it. I just think that's such a key part that your city has embraced and not only embraced, I mean, you talk about how, you know, crime has gone down in a large metropolitan area. And I, I think it's important to know that, you know, you started with things and staffing really wasn't there. You started with like a person or, you know, two. I mean, it doesn't take a lot to have that investment in this. I don't know if you can expand on that or thoughts. Yeah, yeah. No, having the right people in place that have basically the respect of others will help you go a long way. So when we were able to recruit people for this program, we got uh, Detective Thompson that was an integral part of the ballistic information. He's an expert. He's a gun guy. He knows subject matter expert when it comes to guns and he embraces information. So as the leads would come in, we would go to our investigators, share that information with them and let them know. Yeah. And the initial phases are like, yeah, this is, you know, Niven, we have other process, but not only did we do it through the detectives one-on-one, -on -one, but we also have it throughout the agency, the buy-in from the agency and, and, and our command staff is it's something that cannot be understated either. Uh, our command staff uh, embraces technology and saw that this was a way of, of moving forward, the way to that they've seen it in many other conferences instituted in other agencies. So it's nothing new. It's just now instituting it in our agency and making sure it's it's successful and effective. So I could tell you the best thing that we could have done was uh, start our biweekly meetings with violent crime, where the chief of investigations, Chief Aguilar at the time, would create an agenda of all the shootings that happen within the area and would push it out to the commanders of the units. So 
the homicide unit was there, the violent crime lieutenant was there, the special investigations staff was there. So their SIS command staff, usually that's the place where everything's remains secret. Now we're all collaborating on a regular basis. We brought in our gang components. So anytime we had a shooting and we saw an Ivan connection, as Janacy very clearly stated, uh, like you could see where the infringement on the turf wars were going on. We started identifying that information. Now we started sharing it, that information in basically within the criminal investigation section and the, also sharing it with our outside partners. And when we started doing that, it held the detective accountable. So they knew that Nibin only was there. They looked it into it further. When it solved the case, that was fine. When it, you know, when it wasn't enough, then they moved on to other investigative components. But we had everybody there that could possibly help that investigator with his investigation from gangs and narcotics and robbery or anywhere else that could share that information that, that moved that key information along. So as we went along, the collaboration has basically enhanced and it's moving investigations forward because we know that there's multiple ways to tackle a case. But by sharing that information with the detective and their supervisors, you know, knowing that that information is in there, now it brings in the, the uh, accountability. So now you, you can't ignore that the lead was there. You either address it and, and it helps you out or, or you move on to other other things that are going to help you out with the case. And that's what we're seeing here. And, and then sometimes when we have a lead, for example, that uh, links to stuff back in 2017, we could clearly tell them like, look, you may not want to look into that lead that much because between 2017 and 2023, that gun could have exchanged many times. So that's where CJ comes in and says, look, this is a lead, but it's not going to help you out. Or hey, this lead is really good. It's been connected to other guns. There's a sequence of fire where it's been shooting on, you know, three times this past three months or something like that. Something that we think is incredible, important, so that now we could enhance it with cell sites. We could enhance it with uh, gangs. We could enhance it with connections. And and that's how we're making that information viable and, and productive and successful in this area. And then our partners at ATF, our partners are Miami-Dade County. Just the fact that we're sharing information on a daily basis so it's not just the meetings that we have with them, but we also have a, a daily call that is administered by the sheriff by Miami-Dade County. And that's information there that we're sharing as to what happened in the last 24 hours. That collaboration there is crucial, sharing that information with, with not only internal detectives, but exterior detectives that could help out with the case. Thank you for sharing all that. That's super important. So turning back to you, Janacy, how can other agencies, including ones that may not be the size of Miami-Dade, take steps to implement more of a forensic intelligence-based approach to shootings investigations? Well, one thing I have noticed the more I, I've been in this position is that sometimes while you might not have all the fancy resources that bigger agencies are fortunate to have, there is a lot of grants available where you can apply for and actually start either a CJIC center, which is a big boost because I know a lot of different entities, they're very dependent on labs in order to do the workup. And because of geographical issues, it might be far away. So it might take them a while to get there. Um, for example, I once had to, someone spoke to me from Canada. Canada and they asked me, how can I duplicate what you do here over there? I was like, well, do you have a robust like Nibin center over there? I believe it's called Sybin. And she tells me it takes them around a year to add their information from when the crime happens actually to enter into Sybin. And my first thing was like, that's too long. Here, we usually, like Sanchez said, sometimes he can get his result within three hours from when the crime happened, get it into Nibin. Sometimes for us, we get it within 24 hours or, or less. So like we'll get a result, we'll get a hit, everything will just keep moving like a well-oiled machine. <laughs> the only thing that um, I would ask them was to speak to their lab directors, to speak to the people in charge of processing the forensic evidence and see how they can expedite some of these incidents. Just because it's not a priority case does not mean that there's not intel there that will be beneficial for them in the future. Like Sanchez was saying, it's true. 
maybe a homicide from 2017 that a gun was recovered from 2023 might not be useful. But if we were to look at the entire history, the totality of the circumstances of how that gun was recovered, we might be able to find more viable information. Those cases that it linked to, was any DNA recovered from the homicide? Is anybody present there that at one point may have had some type of connection with that firearm? The known associates of some of those victims, the known associates of some of those offenders, or the person that actually was recovered with the firearm. Can any of that be tied to the homicide itself? If I were to show my entire results of my findings to the lead investigator for the homicide, is it most likely that he'll be like, oh my God, that's the guy I was looking for. That has happened a lot of times. He's like, oh, how did you know that he was related to it? And I was like, I didn't personally know he was related because it's not written anywhere, but he is a very close friend of the person that the firearm was found under or the person that claimed they stole the firearm. You know, it just puts him in the area and just kind of confirms the officer's findings. And once again, uh, like I said, not everybody has the resources, but don't give up on forensic intelligence just because right now some of the labs might be, it's taking a little bit too long in order to do it. Keep trying. The intelligence there is like the hidden gem that you were looking for. is information that's very valuable. Nobody will come up to you and say, no, I didn't say that because science is not a witness that contradicts itself. It will tell you, yes, that linked and it will always be so. So it's valuable information backed by scientific facts, not by an opinion. That carries a lot of weight in law. And if it's a homicide or any type of case, any type of intelligence or information or intel that you have available will be exceptionally valuable. So I say to them, if right now you can't duplicate what Sanchez is doing or what we're doing at the moment, start having the conversations that matter. I know that before Chief Stephanie Stoyle was able to bring me on board, she actually had to reach out a couple of times and tell them there is a need for an intelligence analyst to view the forensic intel or the forensic information we're producing here. And once they saw what was available, pretty much it was like they turned on the fire rolls. Um, that's what she used to like to say a lot. And it's just the information there was in abundance and it wasn't anything I was making up. So officers always thought that I was like, how did you know this? Like, where did you find it? And I was like, the forensic results told me so. This is my findings, just looking at the forensic results and reading the reports that you guys write. This is the information. This is the story that the evidence was able to yield for you. And, and that will be the best advice that I can work with what you have. Also, if you're a new intelligence analyst and you just want some information, there are great YouTube videos videos available. There are great trainings that are free and always reach out to your counterparts all through the, the county or close by and they'll be more than happy to help. Thank you for that. I, and I think you touched on this and a theme that I'm hearing throughout this discussion is really about these building relationships, both internal and external. And you did touch on this a little bit, but for people who, you know, newly hired crime analysts or intelligence analysts, or maybe new to an agency earlier in their career, We've heard that sometimes there's this big disconnect. They don't quite know how to talk to cops and the cops don't know what service they're really going to be able to provide for them. So what advice do you have for those sorts of folks who are new to this career or new to an agency to form those deep connections that you need for this to be a successful partnership? It's like any relationships, be it family, be it friends, be a romantic relationship. It takes work. When I first joined, I would say hi to officers. Sometimes I would demote them because I didn't know their rank. So one time I saw a lieutenant and I was like, hi, sergeant. He's like, thank you for the demotion. That day I learned everybody's uniform insignia and I made sure I never messed up again. He didn't say it in a mean way, but it's just that I realized right off the bat my lack of knowledge in the in the concept of it. Sometimes I'll talk to officers and I'll be like, well, if I just like filter really quick through IT, to empower BI, I'll be able to tell you the probabilities of this happening. They, their eyes just glaze over and they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about right now? And I realized that 
is just the way of the beast, pretty much. Like I was taught to think in an analytic component because most of my databases work like that. And sometimes when I'm talking in my own head, it all makes sense. But imagine if an officer were to take you out on the road and he will start throwing signals at you and he will start throwing you the Florida statues all of a sudden. And you're not particularly known in the field. All of a sudden, you feel like you have no clue what's going on. So it's about finding that common ground and relating to them and vice versa and analysts and officers taking the time to relate to analysts as well and being like, oh, that makes sense. This is what she means when she said she was going to roll the commonality. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to see if you guys have been arrested multiple times. We're in the area he's most likely to be arrested in. Use terminology that is familiar with them. And I'm like, I'm going to check to see how many times he's been arrested in a particular grid. I'm going to just look at mugshots. I'm going to look who he hangs out with. I'm going to see if any of your officers at one point did a field interview report on him and see how we can coordinate all that information for you. What is it that you're trying to find out and how can I assist you to do it? Analysts have always been a support to officers. And officers have a lot of information that because they don't write it down anywhere does not mean that it's not valuable. So it's just a matter of as an analyst sitting down and having a conversation and creating those relationships with officers. Just like everything, there will be people will be easy to deal with. Other might be a little bit more difficult, but sometimes you just ride the wave. I noticed and I said this before is like when I first joined, I would speak to officers. I didn't understand exactly what I meant. And then one day I had a presentation. I just showed them my product and I started talking to them like I talked usually when I was assigned to the station or was assigned to an RTCC, just in code, signal code, anything that they can relate to. They're like, oh yeah, he's a 52. Yeah, he always hangs out there. And he started recognizing them by nicknames and pictures and images because sometimes they don't have like the DOB and all the, the data sets that I have available. And like I said, it's just a matter of creating a connection. And just remember at the end of the day, we're all humans. We're all here for a greater purpose, which is to help our communities. And that usually works out for everybody. You bring up such a good point about creating that relationship with the investigators themselves, knowing what you want. So you're getting them the proper information. You're not doing any extra work on products they don't want. And the investigators are getting exactly what they want. Just yeah, amazing what you guys are both doing. Janacy and Fabio, looking ahead to, I guess, the next five or 10 years, stuff that Miami Dade Police Department and uh, Miami PD are doing right now, and, and doing right now is specifically to prevent fatal and non-fatal gun violence. What could you tell about your successes that other people in this nation should be following? I could tell you that partnerships are the most important part of it. it you have to have partnerships within your local prosecutor's office and uh, within your the agencies, the ATF, the federal agency, the FBI. It all has to be a collaboration because we all have partnership. We all have a stake in, in reducing crime and, and we all have parts that we could contribute to that. So the success we've had here is by having a, an actual in-house uh, expedited NIBIN process that now we show that that gives actionable intelligence on a, on a regular basis that helps investigations. That's something that it might be a big initial investment if you look at it, the machine itself, I think when we started was at $500,000 for the brass tracks machine, along with the dedicated training. But once you have that dedicated group of people that do that process in an expedited manner, work with our partners in law enforcement and property and evidence and, and prosecutor's office, we're streamlining the process and, and combining a lot of information. So I could tell you that this is a model that could be, you know, you had it in Milwaukee. So we learn a lot from other agencies as to what was done in other agencies, what can be done in your agency and start tackling a little bit at a time. So if you can do the NIBIN, at least understand the NIBIN process and the technology nowadays. Now, now the investments we have within forensics, I mean, DNA advancements that we have, I could see that as long as we have this younger group of, of law enforcement individuals, whether it's an analyst or a detective or a forensic analyst, we're going to all join together. 
with technology and, and advance it as much as we can so that it could collaborate the investigative process, it could expedite it and, and it could guide us so that we're data driven. Not only data driven from word on the street, but you know, understanding that the forensics have a big component that could help your investigation now. When you factor in video, cell sites, this all combines together. It's it's a point where you don't always need a witness or victim, you know, a witness or somebody to say, yes, that's the person that shot me because we have the the video, we have the DNA, we have the, the knifing connection. We have all those components that kind of point to the offender and get to a point where it's undisputable to some extent, where it becomes un- unsurmountable for the defense to overcome that that overwhelming circumstantial evidence. So we'll see more of these cases with the multi-layer of components. But I think the more we embrace technology and partnerships, the way we, we embrace our, our collaboration, I think the collaboration here is the most important part. As long as you have partnerships throughout the region and you have a champion within your agency that could help you move this process along, you could take baby steps and, and move you know light years ahead of where you are because we definitely see, saw that here in Miami. A lot of the technology, a lot of the forensics helped us break through those barriers. And if it wasn't for that and, and the dedicated individuals like Janacy and, and the people here at CJIC, if it wasn't for those dedicated people, we wouldn't be able to break through those those barriers because we wouldn't have success stories to provide. As long as we continue to embrace and evolve the forensic processes that we have through DNA and ballistic uh, analysis, I think we're going to continue to uh, bring down that crime. So let me ask you, Sergeant Sanchez, using the CJIC model, what is your city as a whole seeing as far as crime increase or decrease? So overall, we're seeing a drastic drop in uh, violent crime involving firearms. Homicides so far this year for the city of Miami, we have a total of 25 that are straight up homicides, seven that were justifiable where somebody was in the, uh, defending themselves. So 32, 32 in total for an agency and a population the size of Miami. It's an incredible number. It's a historic number that we have haven't seen uh, since the, I think, 1950s. So compared to last year, for example, we had 12 less homicide at this point this year than we had last year. So that's a tribute to the hard work that and collaboration that's been done by the surrounding agencies, but it could all be correlated to the forensic process that is being done in the background that's kind of driving some of these investigations. So as you look at other agencies that have the CJIC model incorporated into their structure, you're going to see that there's a drastic number of, of the, if, like a decrease in crime, and that's worth the investment that you put into it. That's worth the uh, investment, not just in money, but in personnel uh, to help you uh, fight crime and reduce crime. That's amazing. Yeah, Kevin, and I'm seeing kind of like the same pattern as well. Our homicide rate is a little bit lower than it was last year, but our shootings definitely have gone down almost like a hundred case difference between 2021 to 2022 and forward. So our shooting events have, um, have diminished as well on our end. Well, we hope projects like the National Closed Case Project can continue to learn from agencies like yours. You guys are truly a best practice. Your whole region down there has really benefited from people like you and then departments like you that have invested in this. You know, the the best practices of, of crime gun intelligence centers, I mean, this is what it's all about. You guys have changed your investigative processes, your department processes, the way evidence flows, uh, the way you're analyzing caseloads, your and cases in itself. You're leveraging technology and forensics. You're using the most innovative best practices uh, that we've seen in the United States. And that's where I see that, you know, getting ballistics back from a crime lab nine months to a year later is a thing of the past. And departments have that in their hands right now. And you definitely have shown us how we can actually 
change things for the better, to make cases with easier solvability and linkages, and to even increase your case clearance rates. And that's really what the National Close Case Project is about. Thank you for having us. We're happy to have been part of the podcast and appreciate everything you guys have done as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Julia, for having us, inviting us to this important podcast. And uh, we look forward to collaborating with the next department that's up on the block to learn from them as well, because it's always going to be learning and evolving. And I appreciate your National Case Clothes uh, efforts in that aspect. Thank you, Fabio and Janice, for discussing this important work. I think that's one thing that the National Case Clothes Project is really trying to do is not only provide resources to other agencies, but learn from agencies and models like yours on the ground that we can implement into you know national recommendations. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, visit nationalcaseclose.org. I'm Julia Brinton. I'm Kevin R. Brewster. And this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with Rob Lang and Lamar Fial to discuss the importance of collaboration among law enforcement and prosecutors and the critical role each plays in improving clearance rates for both fatal and non-fatal shootings. This project is supported by grant number 15PBJA-21-GK-04008-JA-2021. This is awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Victims of Crime, and the Office of Sex Offender Sentencing, Monitoring, Apprehending, Registering, and Tracking. Points of views or opinions in this document are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.